You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Okay, Acts chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. And neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favour, Felix left Paul in prison. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks, Joseph, for reading so well. Hi, my name is Dan, and I am one of the pastors here at RHC. If this is your first time visiting, we would like to um, extend a very warm welcome to you. And it's always such a joy and privilege to be with you all here at the third congregation. 
before we jump in to Acts 24, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you that you rose from the dead. And we thank you that this is a historical fact that happened. And that because you rose from the dead, our sins are forgiven. And we can walk in newness of life in this world and in the world to come. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict our hearts of truth and righteousness today. And we plead, O Lord, would you open your word to us as you open us to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2005, Steve Jobs, the founder and CEO of Apple Computers, did a commencement speech at Stanford University detailing his philosophy of life. He said many things, and and this was what uh, stood out for me. He said, remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. He goes on to say, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And there is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. What Jobs is telling these bright, ambitious Stanford graduates is that because we are all going to die, because this is the one life that you have, because what matters is in the here and now, there is no reason not to follow your heart. And this resonates with us, doesn't it? This encapsulates what the world believes. It is no surprise then if you were to go onto youtube.com and search this, you would see that 42 million views of this speech has been played. And this is a man who, by many accounts, lived a fantastic life. He is the man responsible for bringing the supercomputer into our pocket the man who is responsible for redefining and creating multiple industries. He was the man who ushered in the age of the computer-generated motion picture. And if you wanted to live a good life like Steve Jobs, it is so compelling to follow your heart. But there's a dark side to this, isn't there? You know, if you read uh, Jobs' biography by Isaac, um, by I I forgot his last name, (laughs) but his biography, you would know that um, Steve Jobs was also a tyrant at work. He had no problems uh, reducing his employees to tears, and he would readily accept any credit he could get, even if it wasn't his job. His daughter, whom he largely ignored for the first seven years of her life, mused, Clearly, I was not compelling enough for my father. And so we we see the good and the bad 
of this philosophy that because this is all we have, because we're all going to die, there is no reason why you should not follow your heart. And theologian David Wells describes this kind of thinking, this value, as worldliness. He writes, Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason, makes what is wrong seem normal. It's okay if Jobs was horrible at work and treated people like trash, because look at how much good he did. And if we want to live a good life too, don't we feel compelled in our fast-paced, competitive world to close one eye and, and do the same? Because this is all we have now, and we're all going to die, there is no reason why you should not follow your heart. But if we buy into this, if we choose to live this way, James tells us that we have a problem as Christians. James 4.4 writes, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, who subscribes to the values of the world, who walks in the ways of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. You see, the problem with this philosophy is that it focuses, it's obsessed with the world there is here. And it has no category to assess the world that is to come. Because the central point of our faith, what makes Christianity different from all other ideologies of the world, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This resurrection, which happened 2,000 years ago, transformed cowards into martyrs, completely changed the course of Western civilization, and continues to give hope and meaning to millions around the world. And if we say that there is no life after death, that what matters is the here and now, friends, our faith is not totally consistent with the New Testament. And we see that the resurrection, this belief that a homeless man who lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East died on the cross for the sins of the world and rose again three days later is the Son of God, is offensive. And it is the point of contention in our text today in Acts 24. But at the same time, the resurrection is what makes Christianity powerful and powerful enough to change the way we live in the here and now. And so that's my aim today, over the next half an hour, to show from Acts 24 how the resurrection changes the way we live in the here and now. I'll have three points. The first, the resurrection confronts our worldliness. Second, the resurrection cures us from our worldliness. And number three, the resurrection compels us to love other people and not use them. So before we jump in, we need to see that Acts 24 
is the second of three trials that Paul stands for the defense of the gospel. Last week we saw that Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees, sorry, and the Pharisees. And realizing that they had um, theological differences, he said, I believe in the resurrection. And what happened? The Pharisees say, okay, he's cool, no problem. But the Sadducees, they want Paul dead. And so after the first trial, they plot. They find a way to kill him. And Lysias, the tribune, hears about it and sends Paul to Caesarea. And that's where we enter into Acts 24, where Paul stands on trial again before the Roman governor Felix and the Sadducees. After this chapter, in, in the next two, Paul stands on trial again before Festus and King Agrippa. So this is important to note because when we look at Acts 24, there are three movements to take note of of what's going on in the Roman trial. We have a trial, and so the first movement is when the prosecutor comes forward and lays his allegations. Movement number two, after that is done, the defendant steps forward and makes his defense. And then number three, the verdict. The, the Roman governor will decide where the case will land. And so let's jump into verse 1 of Acts 24. And after five days, this was after Paul was sent to Caesarea, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And so we see the characters and, and the setting of, of the scene. We have Ananias, the high priest, um, part of the Sadducees, coming down, uh, very focused on um, getting Paul killed. And he brings with him Tertullus, um, a lawyer, a spokesman, who will represent the Sadducees. Secondly, we have the governor, Felix, who is presiding over the case and who alone has the power and authority to decide whether Paul gets to live or die because of this trial. And then the third character, Paul, defends the gospel and is accused of crimes. And so Tertullus steps forward, movement one, and he charges three things against Paul. In verse 5, for we have found this man a plague. So Tertullus is trying to paint Paul in a negative light by saying that this man is a plague. And the term plague used in those days was um, used to describe someone who would stir up riots. So imagine if you were Felix, a woman governor in charge of a jurisdiction of like uh, a conquered people, the Jews, and, and you have these um, militants who were uh, cause uprising. You try to persuade them and tell them to stop, but if they didn't listen, if they continue to riot, to challenge your authority, what would you do? You would kill them. You will sentence them to death. And so that was Tertullus' strategy, to paint Paul as a plague, as a rioter, because if Felix saw what Tertullus wanted him to see, he would naturally sentence Paul to death. So, so that is his first accusation, that Paul was a plague who stirred up riots among the Jews throughout the world. Accusation number two in verse five, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Nazarenes being Nazareth, Jesus coming from Nazareth, this was an early name of the Christians. And Tertullius is saying that Paul is a leader of this sect of the Christians. Accusation number three, verse six, 
He, Paul, even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So these are the three main allegations. But do you see the problem with uh, Tutilis' delivery? Well, there are two. Number one, that Paul stood out riots simply did not happen. If we were to flip back to Acts 21, we saw that it was Paul who was in the temple, minding his own business, purifying himself, and then some Jews from Asia saw him and started inciting the mob. That's how all of this troubles started. So it wasn't Paul who caused the riots. It was, Jew- it was the Jews from Asia, another set of Jews, who started the problem. So accusation one, we see from Acts 21, simply didn't happen. What about accusation two and three? That Paul was a sect of the Nazarenes, that he profaned the temple. What's the problem with this? The problem was that the Romans simply did not care about issues regarding the Jewish faith. So hypothetically, if Paul did profane the temple, if he believed in a rogue sect of the Jews, what difference does it make to Felix? In fact, Lysias, who sent Paul to Felix, wrote a letter to Felix, and we can assume that Felix read this letter before the trial. And in Lysias' own estimation, Paul did not do anything deserving of death or imprisonment. In Lysias' read of the situation, this was all happening because of a dispute over matters of the Jewish faith. And so very quickly, we see Tertullus try to get Paul killed. But if we look deeper into his arguments, they hold no water. However, what is important for us to note is that Tertullus was representing the Sadducees. As we've seen in in the previous chapter, the, the Sadducees were the aristocrats of Jewish society. The high priest himself, Ananias, was a Sadducee, and he held the two seats of Jewish power, the temple and the Sanhedrin, which was the highest court uh, for judicial and legislative matters. Theologically, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so they were people who were religious, but people who did not believe in the resurrection. And in many ways, these were men of the world. If you were born a Sadducee, into royalty, into power, and you believe that this is the only life that you have, it is not illogical to do everything in your power to preserve your power. Do I need to hire a lawyer to sprout out lies in order to get someone killed? I'll do it. Should I use the legal system to quash the leader of this new religious sect that is threatening my religious authority. I'll do it. I'll do it because this life is all I have. I'm going to die and disappear, and there is no reason why I should not follow my heart. When asked about his views of life and death, the late Mr. Lee Kuan Yew once mused, that objectively, life is better than death. Even though he would have loved to see his wife, who who had passed a few years prior, he believed that he would cease to exist at death. 
Because if not, the next world will be overpopulated. <laughs> I love how pragmatic <laughs> Mr. Lee Kuan Yew was. But if we take a moment to consider how stressful Singapore is, how competitive Singapore is, how expensive Singapore is, don't we sometimes have a similar view? Why think of matters about life and death and God and religion and heaven and hell? I don't even have time to see my kids. I don't even have time to exercise. What matters is the here and now. I'm just trying to build a life. But be careful because if we are not clear about what we believe, believe in, we can be religious without believing in the resurrection. You know, I recently became a pastor last year, and one of the privileges and job hazards I have is that suddenly all my friends in the past start asking me uh, for life advice. You know, they'll say, Dan, what is uh, God's will for my life? Does God want me to specialize in this uh, area in medicine? You know, is, is it God's will for me to s sell my condo and, and buy this bungalow that is like uh, near the school that I want to send my kids in? You know, Dan, is, is it God's will for my life to marry this person because uh, I like this other person, but what's God's will for my life? And there's nothing wrong with wanting good things. You know, there's nothing wrong with caring about your children, about wanting to be um, good at your career to provide for your family. But friends, if we care only about God's will for this world and not in the world to come, we miss out on so much of God's will revealed in His Word. If we call ourselves Christians, we must believe in the resurrection, not just implicitly, but functionally in the way we live. We cannot be religious and yet live as if there is no resurrection. Because very soon, if we're not careful, our lives will look no different from those who do not believe in the gospel. And so Tertullus gives his delivery, his accusations, and he does a pretty good job because in, in verse 9, the Jews join in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And so how does Paul respond? Verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him, Paul, to speak, Paul replied, and Paul goes on to refute, deconstruct the arguments with truth and facts. So he starts in, in verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Defense number one, Tertullus is accusing me of all these crimes, but I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days. So there was simply not enough time for me to do all these things. In fact, the past three days, I've been in prison being shuttled around to and fro. So, that, so defense number one, not enough time to do these crimes. Secondly, in, in verse 12, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. 
Paul is going back to the facts that we see in Acts 21. Again, what they accuse of me, I simply did not do. I was purifying myself in the temple, minding my own business, and then these Jews from Asia saw me and started to incite the mob to apprehend me. So defense number two, I simply did not do this. This is a blatant lie. But the third point, the third point of defense that Paul makes is the kicker. And he says in verse 13, neither can they, the Sadducees, prove to you what they now bring up against me. What he is saying is that in a Roman court of law, if you wanted to say that someone committed a crime, you needed to be at the scene of the crime. But these Sadducees now that stood before Paul were not the ones who apprehended him at the temple. In fact, we, we see this argument in, in verse 18. While I was doing this at the temple, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, our friends from X 11, they ought to be here before you to, and to make an accusation. So Paul is saying that I wish my, my, those people who saw me at the temple were here, but they are not. Should they have anything against me? Verse 20, or else let these men, Ananias and the Sadducees, themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. And just like that, he throws the trial out of the window because the Sadducees had no case against Paul. Yes, they can say that, oh, he was a rioter, but they weren't there to see him commit the crime. And remember that Felix knows that Paul is telling the truth because Paul's words aligned with the tribunes a chapter ago. And I want us to see not just what Paul said, but how he said it. You know, in verse 10, he starts his address, and, and it's, it's fascinating. He says to Felix, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully, cheerfully make my defense. It's like going shopping, you know. And I don't know about you, but if I saw someone dragging my reputation through the mud, spouting out lies in order to get me killed, I don't know whether I could have responded with such clarity and cogency, but Paul could. And we saw him, he did it in such a courageous way that he was willing to confront their worldliness. The Sadducees attempts to use everything in their power, lies, the legal system, to get what they wanted. Paul's hope in the resurrection enabled him to confront their worldliness. But the question comes, how did he do it? How was he able to suffer so well? Which brings us to my second point. The resurrection not only confronts our worldliness, but the resurrection cures us from our worldliness. And in order to um, understand this a bit better, we need to zoom out from Acts 24 to look at the story of Paul. And like all of us here, we have a story. We have, a f we, we have an encounter with Jesus. We don't just exist in this world to maximize, maximize our lives. But God knows us. He sees us. 
and he cares about our stories, and Paul is no different. Remember Acts 9, before Paul was called Paul, he was called Saul, and Saul was an ambitious man. He was doing well in life. He had ascended the ranks of his religious order. He was taught by one of the greatest Pharisees that the world had seen. And he was so focused on getting ahead that he had no qualms persecuting and throwing Christians into prison. He was so busy getting ahead that it was Saul who presided over the death of the first martyr, Stephen. And in, Paul's, in Saul's mind, he was doing everything right. He thought he was pleasing God. But in Acts 9, as he is walking along the Damascus Road, he is stopped, interrupted by God. And Jesus asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul was able to stand before his enemies because of the grace of God. Paul knew who he was. He must have looked across the aisle and see, saw the same ruthless ambition and hatred in the eyes of those who wanted him killed. But what made the difference between them and him was the grace of God, that God interrupted his business and his ambition and stopped him. And he saved Paul. That's how Paul knew he was different because he had an encounter with the risen Christ. And not only that, Paul knew where he was going. Jesus goes on to say, Go, for Paul, he is a chosen instrument for mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Ekyong very helpfully uh, showed us a few weeks ago that this was Paul's life verse, <laughs> that he'll be the chosen instrument to bear witness for Jesus. And so Paul was able to endure such suffering because he wanted to endure such suffering. Paul knew that the trial wasn't about what he did. Paul knew that it was about the resurrection. As we see in verse 21, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul deconstructs the allegations with truth, but yet cheerfully witnesses, witnesses to them the truth, the truth of the resurrection. In many ways, Paul was living out Jesus' beatitude of the blessed life, the man who is persecuted for righteousness' sake, the man who is reviled and persecuted and uttered against all kinds of evil falsely on Jesus' account. Paul rejoices and is glad, for great is his reward in heaven. Paul is the culmination of Jesus' promise to his disciples that you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It is not Paul standing. It is Jesus with him to his Holy Spirit. 
Jesus goes on to promise, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Paul knows what he's doing. Paul wants to be there. And he uses that opportunity sandwiched in between his defense to preach the gospel. Look with me in verse 14 to 16 of Acts 24. But this I confess to you that according to the way, this is Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. What Paul is trying to do is to love his enemies. He's telling the Sadducees that, look, what I believe is actually not very different from what you believe. He is still pleading, trying to show them the truth because they are on a path of destruction that the Pharisee Saul used to be on. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. What Paul is trying to say here is that most Jews in Paul's day did believe in the resurrection. There was martyr's hope when Jesus asked him whether he was Lord, that there'll be a resurrection. However, the Sadducees probably believed something that was a bit more unique from most Jews of of their day. But the point being that Paul was willing to maybe bend over backwards to relate, to speak in love to his enemies, except on one thing. One thing that he knew would close them off, which was the resurrection. Verse 21, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul knows that he's not on trial to defend his life. There is no case against him. Paul chooses to be on trial so that he can defend the resurrection. So what's the big deal about the resurrection? Do you think about the resurrection much? I know I didn't when, when I was preparing for, for this sermon. But the resurrection is what makes Christianity different from everything. You know, I don't really cry at the movies often, but the last time I did was in 2019 when I watched Avengers Endgame. And I still remember the scene when Captain America is standing by himself all his allies uh, are dead on the floor and his shield is broken and he's been dealt multiple blows but he keeps getting up and he's standing alone against all his enemies, against the arriving impending armies of Thanos the Mad Titan. And he's standing alone, is looking bleak. And then suddenly he gets a radio call saying, Captain, Captain, are you there? And what happens next is that a yellow round portal uh, opens, stay with me, and, and out, out steps uh, Black Panther with uh, two of his friends. And then suddenly, all these portals appear everywhere behind Captain America, and we see that these heroes, these Avengers who had died, they come back to life and they stand with their captain. And I have to tell you, after 21 movies, I got a bit emotional, man. You know, I, I, found, I found myself tearing and, and um, low-level weeping. And um, it was a beautiful moment, but the point that I'm trying to make 
is that if the Marvel Cinematic Universe could make me feel so much because people who are important to me came back from the dead, how much more would it have been for Peter, John, Andrew, Mary Magdalene, these disciples of Jesus who lived with him, laughed with him, listened to his teachings, saw him arrested, dying on the cross, naked, vulnerable. They ran away when the going got hard. All their hopes, dreams, aspiration of this kingdom of heaven died on that day on the cross. Imagine how they must have felt when Jesus came back and said, believe in me. Friends, the resurrection matters because firstly, the resurrection happened. The resurrection is an event in history. It is not something that Christians taught about and devised to help them feel better about this life. This is the same resurrection that transformed all these cowards into martyrs, that changed the world. If Christ did not live after he died, Christianity has no power. Don't waste your time. And we see this forcefully communicated in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll spend some time in. So the resurrection matters also because it has the power to change the way we live in the here and now. So look with me, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, verse 3, sorry. For I delivered, this is Paul, to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Look at what Paul does next in verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. You know, a lot can be said about the historical validity of the resurrection. But one of the strongest evidences for our faith is 1 Corinthians. This letter was written some 20 years after Jesus died. And so what Paul is telling his readers is that if you don't believe me, ask Peter, ask the 12, ask the 500 people that you probably know whether you saw the risen Christ. Paul is saying the resurrection matters because the resurrection happened. He goes on to say, then he appeared to James, verse 7, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. We believe as Christians that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world and he rose again and is alive. The resurrection matters because the resurrection happened. The second thing the resurrection does in changing the way we live is that the resurrection gives us a new purpose. Look with me, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 15. For I, Paul, am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul did not forget his past. He did not forget where he came from. He did not forget his story. 
And in verse 10 and 11, he uses the word grace three times. Verse 10, he uses the word grace three times. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul was a man transformed by grace. And if you and I want to last the distance, we want to be faithful to Christ. It's not about how much we want to please God or how serious we are about our faith or how much strength we have in being good moral people that do the right thing. These things are important. But what will make the difference in you and my life is that we, that we realize that we are saved by grace, that it is God's grace to help us believe, to have our sins forgiven. And not just that, for Paul, this grace gave him a new purpose because not only was Paul saved from his sins, as amazing as that is, this former murderer of Christians was now called to be an apostle of the church. Paul did not deserve his purpose. And he knew that. That's why it was only by the grace of God that Paul was who he was. And his grace towards Paul was not in vain. And Paul's story is our story. You know, if you're struggling in your faith today, if you feel far away from God, if you know that you have failed terribly, you are who you are because of God's grace. And God's grace on your life is not in vain. This is Paul's purpose. This is our purpose as well. And this is all true because of the resurrection. So the res resurrection matters because it happened. The resurrection helps us to live differently because it gives us a new purpose. And the resurrection gives us a new hope. What is purpose if it's not anchored in hope? Look with me in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, if Christ did not return from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You know, we love to talk about the cross and how Christ died for our sins, and that is great. But Paul is saying, if Christ stayed on the cross, if the tomb uh, was not empty, even though Christ was an amazing teacher, he loved his enemies, he died on our behalf, if he did not rise again, there will be no difference. God is still angry at our sin and we are still awaiting his judgment. He goes on to say, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, if in Christ we have we have hope in this life only. We, of all people most, should be pitied. What Paul is saying is that if there is no resurrection, don't be a Christian. If you want to be a Christian so that God can give you your best life now, don't suffer. Don't come to church. Because at the end of the day, in the final analysis, when you die, your life is going to be no different for someone who spent their entire lives stepping on people, fulfilling their desires, getting rich. 
because we all die. If our hope as Christians is in this life only, we should be pitied. But the good news is that in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus coming from the, day, from the dead is the birth of a new dawn that a woe is coming. Romans 8 says that all of creation groans, is in bondage for the revealing of the sons of righteousness. That when Jesus came back from the dead, we know that Jesus is God. And not only that, those who believe in him will rise again as he ushers in the world to come, a new heavens and a new earth. And this is our hope, friends, that we have a world that is coming, a world far better than our present one, a world where all pain, disappointments, unmet longings, betrayals, hurts, disappointments, fears, anxieties, worries, insecurities will be flipped over like pages of a chapter and we will wake up from the nightmare of this broken world and step into the good chapters of our lives stepped into this better world ruled by a better king with no end. This is our hope. Howard Thurman, an African-American scholar at Boston University, once gave a famous lecture at Harvard in 1947 on the meaning of Negro spirituals. These were gospel songs that the African slaves would sing in the cotton fields. Thurman engaged the criticism of his day that the African-American spirituals were too outworldly, too filled with references to heaven, to crowns and, th and thrones and the robes the singers would wear when Jesus returned. The argument was that such beliefs made the slaves docile and submissive, unfit to fend for themselves in this world. Thurman disagreed. In fact, he argued that this sung faith served to deepen the slave's capacity for endurance. The spirituals encompassed the Christian belief in the final judgment, a day on which all wrongs will be made right, included a belief in personal immortality and the reunion with loved ones forever. These relatives and friends who die in the cotton fields, they will meet once again. Out of these doctrines, the conviction grew that this, is, this kind of universe cannot ultimately deny the demands of love and longing that we all share. Uniting with loved ones pointed to the hope of immortality, and immortality pointed to the reality of God. And the reality of God pointed that He will make all wrongs right because of the resurrection. And the question that we must ask ourselves is where are we placing our hope today? Is your hope in your career? Is your hope in a happy marriage? Is your hope in having 
good children who love you? Is your hope in politics? Is our hope in this world or in the world to come? The resurrection confronts our worldliness. The resurrection cures us from our worldliness. And lastly, and real quickly, the resurrection compels us to love and not use people. And so Tertullus makes his allegations clear. Paul stands and defends himself. And the verdict, Felix is not convinced. And so what Felix does is he uh, puts the trial on hold. He says, I'll wait for the tribune to come over. And then he gives orders that Paul should be kept in custody with quite a lot of freedoms. And after that, very interesting, after a few days in verse 24 or Acts 24, we see Felix come with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he wanted to speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So very interesting, right? This was a powerful man who had authority, who had possibly everything the world could offer. And yet, after the trial, he wants to go talk to Paul about religion. And you know, if you were Paul, this is a great opportunity to get out of jail, isn't it? Now you have a FaceTime with the Roman governor. He's bringing his wife, you know, and, and you're talking about things that, that you care deeply about. But Paul doesn't use Felix to get out of prison. In fact, he uses the opportunity to preach the gospel over and over again. Verse 25. And, and he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control, and the coming judgment. And how did Felix respond? Felix was alarmed. (laughs) And the word alarm here comes from the Greek word phobos, which is where we get our word phobia. So it's not going well at all. You know, Felix wants to find out more. He's interested. But Paul goes full on righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And why? Why was uh, Felix so troubled? Because historians tell us that Felix was a man drunk with power, pleasure, and politics. Felix was born actually a slave who was freed. And through his raw ambition and violent ways, he was able to ascend the ranks of Roman society to become a governor, which was a huge thing. His wife, Drusilla, was said to be a woman of legendary beauty. And because he fell in love with her, he followed his heart, he seduced her to leave her husband to be with him. And Drusilla was one of the three wives he had. And he was also entrenched in politics. We find out later that when Felix kept meeting up with Paul, it wasn't just to find out about the faith. In fact, he hoped that Paul would use money to bribe his way out. (laughs) And because Paul didn't, in in verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And I think the scriptures show us that Felix was truly a man of this world, that he had everything that the world could offer, but yet there was something about Paul's faith, about what he believed, that was compelling. 
And I think the text is forcing us to ask ourselves, how will we respond to the resurrection? Will we be religious but live, live our lives without reference to the resurrection like the Sadducees? Will we be like Felix who want to make it in this world, know how things work, open to what Christianity has to offer, but it doesn't change our lives? Or will we be like Paul, who was able to suffer and endure for the joy set before him because his hope was in the world to come? As I close, I would like to contrast two people, two men, who had very different perspectives to death. Remember Steve Jobs? He believed that death was a great invention. Well, he kind of shifted a little bit when he was facing his own death. And uh, in his last meetings with Walter, Walter Isaacson, his biographer, <laughs> um, he, he started talking about the um, afterlife. He had this to say, sometimes I'm 50-50 on whether there's a God. It's the great mystery we never quite know. But I like to believe there's an afterlife. I like to believe the accumulated wisdom doesn't just disappear when you die, but somehow it endures. Jobs, pause for a second, and then he continues. But maybe it's just like an on-off switch and click, you're gone. And then he paused for another second and smiled and said, maybe that's why I didn't like putting on and off switches on Apple devices. Another man who devoted his life to preaching the gospel, mentoring scores of young pastors and strengthening the faith of Christians globally, who put himself in some of the most hostile environments to defend the faith. Timothy Keller recently passed a few months ago. And on his deathbed, his final words were, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Believing in the resurrection will not give you and me a better life in the here and now, but it will lead us to live a more beautiful life, a life that is not obsessed with our passions and our dreams and our desires, but one that is poured out proclaiming the glorious truth of our risen Savior, pointing people to the world that is to come. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus died for our sins and on the third day he rose again. And Lord, you see our stories, you know what we're going through, how we just struggle, Lord, to live here and have so little time to think about these things. Lord, I pray that you arrest us like you did in Saul, that you interrupt and show us not that you're more important even as you are, but that you love us, that you care for us, and that you want to give us your grace, this grace that will transform us and give us hope. And so, Lord, we look to you and we thank you that Jesus rose again. And because he promised to, to come back, we can have hope in him as we live today. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.